Would you please, please stand now as I, I read this morning's passage of Scripture uh, from Mark chapter 1. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the 2004 film Miracle, uh, the 1980 Olympic hockey team is uh, portrayed and their story is told of uh, the Olympic Games in Lake Placid. Um, how many of us uh, watched the Olympic Games in 1980 in Lake Placid? How many of us had no idea they were doing Olympics that long ago? Okay, okay, some of us over here. All right, um, in, in the 1980 uh, Olympics, the uh, Olympic hockey team, U.S. men's Olympic hockey team, would go up against some very formidable opponents. And so Kurt Russell is, uh, stars as Coach Herb Brooks. And uh, Herb Brooks was the head coach at the University of, of Minnesota. And he is tasked with assembling a team of collegiate players from all over the country to compete with these very formidable opponents, namely the Soviet Union, who had just dominated the hockey scene for a long, long time. And so in the movie, it shows the assembling of the team, and they try out all these different players, and finally the team list comes out, and there's some surprising things that take place, right? There's some players that were left off that they thought should have been on, but, but Brooks has in his mind a team that he wants to mold. And so he has this team, and they begin to practice together, and there's a scene early on in the movie shortly after practices begin, where you have all these players, and, and they have different rivalries that have happened through collegiate competition up to this point. They're, they're high-spirited, competitive guys. They're getting after it. These are the best of the best players from all over the country, but they still have these rivalries within, um, their, uh, within themselves. And so rather than playing as a team, they decide to bring these rivalries onto the ice, and they get into some skirmishes, and, and Brooks blows the whistle and stops practice and marches out onto the ice and says, listen, it's not about... Where, where you've been or like where, where you've played in the past, like this, this is a team now. He said, let's just like strip everything down and let's get to some player introductions. And they're kind of rolling their eyes like, okay, coach, whatever. He says, no, like really, like let's introduce each other. Um, you say your name, where you're from, and what school you played for. And so they kind of, you know, hesitantly begin this process of introducing themselves. And you just hear a, a voice. He says, Rob McClanahan. St. Paul, Minnesota, and I, I play here at you, for you, coach. And so another moment of silence, and then another voice uh, speaks up, Jack O'Callaghan, Charlestown, Massachusetts, Boston University. And they begin to announce their names one after the other and where they're from and what school they play for. And the team uh, then begins to play these series of exhibition games in preparation for the Olympic Games. And, and they're not doing very well. In fact, the results are pretty mixed, very mediocre uh, finishes. And so uh, Brooks is just frustrated on one particular evening. They just lost, and he's kind of livid. He just, he's losing at this point. He walks into the locker room, and the only, things he's, the only thing he says to the team after this game is done is, put your gear back on, we're going back out on the ice. And so they, they put their gear back on, and they march back out on the ice. Their body's already tired. They've already played an entire game, and he 
tells them to get on one far side of the ice, and they stand behind the line, and he says, okay, we're, we're just we're sprinting. And so they blow the whistle, and they skate sprints back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The legs are tired. The lungs are burning. It's just like they, they, they don't have very much left in the tank, and they keep going and going and going and going. And finally, guys are just collapsing as they get to the finish line. They're just falling down. They're laying on the ice, and Brooks just, hey, get back on the line. And the assistant coaches are kind of like, listen to her, like, you're losing it. We, we cannot push these guys any farther. They need to go rest. They've already played an entire game. We've been skating for nearly an hour now. Like, you're, you're, you're out of your mind. He just says, back on the line. And hesitantly, the assistant coach is getting ready to blow the whistle when suddenly you hear a voice. Mike Rizzioni, Winthrop, Massachusetts. And Brooks kind of looks up realizing that maybe they're starting to figure this out. He says, what team do you play for, Mike? And this is the, the coolest part of the movie. This is the goosebumps part of the movie where he says, the United States of America. And no longer were they thinking of themselves as individual players from different places now just kind of doing their own thing, showcase their own skills. They were learning how to be a team and play for each other under one banner, the United States. And right after Brooks hears that, he simply says, that's all, Jim. And they skate off the ice. Now, we, we know that the United States would go on to beat the Soviet Union and win the Olympic gold medal in the 1980 Olympic Games. It's a very good movie. It's up there for me. Uh, it's probably top two or three sports movies. You should watch it. In fact, high school students, we will watch it very soon. It's, it's required viewing if you're in my youth group. Okay. Dallas Willard says this, The most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. That's what you will take into eternity. The most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. That's what, we'll take, that's what you will take into eternity. This morning we're talking about the call of the disciples. So we'll be in Mark chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or a mobile device or you want to pull up our sermon notes to the Church Center app, you can do that. We're in Mark chapter 1 and we're talking about the calling of the disciples. We read a portion of our text earlier. Let me refresh us again. This is Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, being Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Scholar R.T. France says this about this passage, The kingdom of God comes not with fanfare, but through the gradual gathering of a group of socially insignificant people in an unnoticed corner of provincial Galilee. Not with trumpets, not with parades, not with military might, but just with a simple call. Come and follow. Where Jesus finds these guys around the region of Galilee, they're, they're casting their nets into the sea. This is Galilee. It's beautiful. I'm surrounded by mountains on the eastern bank, and there's lots of different cities in and around this place. They're casting this large net into the water, fishing. And you could do this from the side of a boat or from the shore, but it had heavy weights on the side, and it would pull the net down to the bottom. And as it did, it would capture fish, and then they'd pull the ropes, and it would capture all the fish within the net, and then they'd bring the net up onto the boat or back to the shore with them. Fishing was a thriving industry in and around the region of Galilee. In fact, there were more than 16 ports around this, really what is a, a fairly small lake. 
Galilee um, was known for its fishing, and many surrounding towns were named because of this fishing trade. Bethsaida was, uh, tra- would be translated as the house of the fisher. The, the, the town Magdala means fish tower. The, the town Teratea uh, translates to salted fish, uh, which sounds like the name of a very delicious uh, grill and bar. Um, but fishing uh, was an incredible industry in this region. And these men were a part of it. And, and so most likely, these were not just like indignant day laborers. These were guys who owned their own business and who were doing quite well. They had something good going on. They were shrewd businessmen who understood the supply and demand, and they were doing well for themselves. And Jesus sees them. He sees Peter and Andrew, and he simply offers this call. Hey, follow me. Come, follow me. Now, this invitation is unique because rabbis at the time, those who had followers for themselves, those who had disciples, this isn't a unique thing to Jesus to have disciples. Many people had disciples. They would, they would call followers, but they would call them to the Torah, the section of Scripture that the Jewish people read and would meditate on and, and many would memorize. They called them to a text, but Jesus calls them to himself. It's a manifestation of how John begins his gospel when he says, in the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That Word is Jesus. He is himself the call. Jesus offers the call, but Jesus is the call. Come, follow me. Jesus didn't say, and here's where some of us get tripped up, Jesus didn't say, hey, come find me when you're ready. Hey, when you've sorted everything out that you feel like you need to sort out and put together and have in order, then you come find me. Here's where I'll be. Jesus also doesn't say, fix your mess. All the sin in your life, all the the things that have entangled you and and the corruption in your heart. Like, once you've figured that out and once you've done all the things to set yourself right with God, then you're worthy to be my follower. Come find me after you've fixed your mess. Jesus also doesn't Say, here's, what, here's where I'm headed. Come meet me there. He doesn't give a destination. He simply points them in a direction. Come follow me. I'm going somewhere, and I want you to come with me. Jesus' authority is on display. There's a magnetism to him that cannot be matched anywhere else. There's, think about it. There's no supporting evidence. There's no miracle that happens here. There's nothing that would wow you about this moment, but you have these two guys standing on the shore casting a net out into the lake. And Jesus just says, come follow me. And they say, yes. Demonstrates the immense power of Jesus. They respond by immediately leaving their nets and following him. And when Jesus invites them to follow, he isn't flooded with questions that we would be tempted to ask. Like, Jesus, where are we going? How long will it take to get there? What, like, what can I expect Anybody like an Amazon review person in here? Not that you write them, you just read them endlessly. Like whenever you want to buy something, you have everything you want to buy, and so you're reading all kinds of reviews. And a lot of times it's, it's more confusing than it is helpful because you have one person who has a one-star review, the other has a five-star review. It's like, this, like, this does not help me at all. But some of us, we, like, we want the Amazon reviews on Jesus, don't we? Jesus, how long is this going to take? And what do I actually have to give up? Where are we actually going? What, like, so, someone else who's done this before, please just tell me, like, what am I getting myself into? There are no requisite demands of, of Jesus prior to them coming aboard. You notice this? Sometimes we put unnecessary barriers in the way of people coming to Jesus. 
Jesus calls them, just as they are, to follow him. There's no entrance exam of Bible knowledge. There's no Enneagram. There's no personality inventory. There's no skills or aptitude test. There's nothing like that. Jesus just says, hey, come follow me. Sometimes we, we reduce the whole of our relationship with Jesus. Like we sum it all up with this idea of knowledge. Like if I could just know more, if I just read my Bible more, if I just got into a Bible study, like I just need to know more things and then I can feel better about myself and God will be more pleased with me. If I just knew all the right things, I just need to memorize the right thing, I, I just need more knowledge. If I, if I could just know it. Anybody guilty of that line of thinking? And Jesus just says, hey, come follow me. Everything you need to know can only be found in following me. Andrew likely knew of Jesus before this event happened. John records in his gospel in John chapter 1, 35 through 42, this encounter where Andrew has seen Jesus and he runs home to his brother Peter and he says, hey, we found him. We found the Messiah. You need to come and see him. But nonetheless, Mark demonstrates the authority of Jesus' call. Even if they had prior knowledge of who Jesus was, the very fact that Jesus could speak to these two men and say, come follow me, and they would immediately drop their nets and go. is powerful. Jesus seeks out these men on their terms and on their turf. Friends, Jesus, he steps into where you are, but listen, he invites you to where he is going. Being stagnant, still, or stuck is not the way of Christ. He calls us to a life of perpetual movement, that we're always chasing after him. He doesn't give a destination. He points us in a direction, and he says, come with me, we're going, follow And we get caught up in the versions of Jesus that we're comfortable with, but not the one that we're compelled by or convicted by. Jesus is calling them to follow, not giving them any more information, not answering all of the questions, just saying, come follow me. Movement is not only implied, it is necessary. The way of Jesus is a life in motion. It's moving to meet the needs of others. It's, it's ready to reach the lost with the gospel. It's burdened with this haunting in your soul that there are people who do not yet know the Lord and they will live in eternity separated from Him. Jesus wants us to follow and it's a life marked by movement. Paul writes in, in Philippians chapter 3, and if there was anyone who could reach a point in his life and be like, that's it, I feel like I've done enough. I think I've hit my quota for souls saved. Like if anyone could have a stamp of approval from God, it would have been Paul. Like Paul, you, you've preached the gospel in, in all the farthest corners of the known world. Like you've traveled, you've been shipwrecked, you've been beaten in the name of Jesus, you've been in prison. If anybody could have stand up and said like, guys, I think I'm just going to sit the next 10 years out and go enjoy retirement in Florida for a while, it's Paul. But that's not his attitude. That's not his approach. In fact, listen to what he says. I press on. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul does not see his life as something to be used for himself, but for the glory of God. So Jesus calls these men to himself, but he also says this, I will make you fishers of men. In fact, the, the translation that we read earlier, ESV, and this is a more accurate to the Greek, he says, I will make you become fishers of men. Right? I will make you become fishers of men. It's kind of like I speak to my kids. I will make you become obedient. Okay? We're, we're going to get there. We're working on it now. But that is going to happen. 
This is like a promise from Jesus. I will make you become fishers of men. He's calling them to action, to lives that would give themselves away. The call is not to become a passive observer. It's not to say, come follow me around and just watch what I do and be there to applaud when I do the miracles. I just, I'm looking for like some hype men. That's not what Jesus calls these guys to do. No, the call is come follow you and I will make you a fisher of men. Jesus is not teaching them what to do. He's showing them who to become. Jesus calls his followers to lives of service. This is a hallmark of Mark's gospel. In fact, if we were to think about each of the gospels presenting a different angle to the personality of Jesus, Mark is intent on helping us to see him as a servant. And it culminates with this idea in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he says, Jesus, about himself, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the call that he places on all who would follow after him. Lives of service. Jesus is not interested in those who simply will voice their support of him, but never take action. Jesus places a call on our lives. It's not a call to more knowledge of facts or to know how to present right answers. It is a call to be his mirror image in this world. Loving in the way that he did. Serving in the way that he did. Following Jesus is synonymous with this idea of discipleship. Again, discipleship is not something unique to Jesus. There were disciples of many different popular teachers and rabbis in this time. And disciples were marked by these four things. They responded to the call. Responded to the call. They attached to the person. They accepted the authority of that person. And they imitated their example. Responding, attaching, accepting and imitating. That is what a disciple looks like. People who say, yes, I follow Jesus, should be moving through these steps, responding, attaching, accepting, and imitating. And we're pretty good at the responding part. We like to attach ourselves with Jesus and associate ourselves with him when it's convenient, but now we get to these two really difficult things, accepting his authority in our lives, accepting that what he says is best for us, and imitating his example in every encounter, in every relationship, in every decision. Imitating his example in all that we do. This is the call to be a disciple. This idea of disciple um, is something that we see even in our world today. If we were to talk about Andy Reid, the head coach of the Chiefs, we would say he's got disciples coaching all throughout the league. This is how we talk about him. Oh, he's an Andy Reid disciple. And as a a Chiefs and a Bears fan, I have a front row seat to one of his disciples, Matt Nagy, who he will be let go after today's game. Let's just say that. Andy Reid's a much better coach than he is disciple maker. But we we still talk about it in this way. That guy's a disciple of Andy Reid. He sat in the room in the pregame meetings. He knows how he's thought about drawing up X's and O's. He knows how he's coached difficult players. He knows everything about what it means to coach like Coach Reid. So now he's ready to go. Jesus, when he calls them to be fishers of men, he doesn't just pull these men away from their profession, but he points them. He points them to a greater purpose. Like, listen, guys, there's something more. Something more that I'm calling you to than just waking up every day, throwing your net out there, bringing your fish into town, getting your money in your pocket and going home. There's something more. He's pointing them to a greater purpose. And as Jesus transformed minds, they became convicted that people needed to hear the gospel. 
As Jesus transformed their desires, they longed for people to hear that gospel. As Jesus transformed their wills, they were compelled to give their lives proclaiming the gospel. As Jesus transformed their relationships, they loved people enough to share the gospel with them, even when it cost them everything that they had. And so as we think about what it means to follow, to accept the call of Jesus and to follow after him, we have to ask ourselves these questions. Has Jesus transformed my mind to the point where I believe people need to hear the gospel? Has he transformed my desire to where more than anything else in this world, what I want is people to know Jesus? Has he transformed my will that I would live my life proclaiming the gospel? Has he transformed my relationship with everyone? That first and foremost, I'd be interested in introducing them to Jesus. That's the call. Jesus calls these men and he calls all of us to follow, but there's a cost. There's a cost associated with this call. The text says that when Jesus calls them, immediately Peter and Andrew drop their nets and follow him. Now their nets are are more than just tools for fishing. They represent their livelihood. Everything about who they were is wrapped up in these nets. And leaving them behind is leaving behind all security and safety, identity, community. It's not just something that they had, it's who they were. And the text says that they dropped their nets, left them behind to follow Jesus. It's scary to lay down your net. It's scary to step into a life of unknown. This is all they'd ever known. And it's also the biggest industry within the region of Galilee. Like, Jesus, can't we just stay here and be successful in your name? And we'll, we'll use the extra money that we have. And like, we'll, we'll help your ministry by funding it and all different kinds. Like, Jesus, can't we just stick with what we're doing? Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't you appreciate that? And Jesus says, come follow me. And you can't hold on to your net and follow him at the same time. You have to drop it. Leaving your net. Leaving your net will prove to be difficult as you follow Jesus. There's different kinds of of nets that popped into my head, but here's just a few that I think are difficult for us to leave behind. We all have a safety net, a backup plan. For some of us, it's a bank account. For some of us, it's a person. For some of us, like whatever it is. You've got to drop your safety net to follow Jesus. For some of us, it's our net worth. You know, we've been so interested in building up an empire for ourselves, in accumulating, in insulating, and in making sure that we have enough to sustain anything that could present trouble to us. We've got to leave our net worth if we're going to drop our nets and follow Jesus. That cannot be more important than his call in our lives. For some of us, and this is going to sound like a joke, but I'm serious, you just need to leave the internet behind. I mean, my goodness, we don't pray anymore. We don't go to God, we go to Google. If we have a question, we have something bothering us or haunting us, or like we just open our phone and we type in the answer instead of getting down on our knees and asking God. And it's hard. It's hard to follow God when you feel like you've already got all the answers in your pocket. And man, what a lie. There's only more confusion here, I promise. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to leave your nets behind, whatever they might be. You have to. James and John are the two other brothers, and they're in a boat with their father, Zebedee. James and John would be called the Sons of Thunder, which is an all-time nickname, right? Sons of Thunder. And they're both part of Jesus' inner circle. John is, is likely the best friend of Jesus. And Jesus' three closest friends were James, John, and Peter. All four fishermen paid a deep price for following Jesus. 
Jesus could see into their futures. He knew what was out ahead of them. He knew the kind of life he was calling them to, and yet he calls them anyway. He knew how their stories would end this side of heaven, and yet he still invites them to follow. And maybe you don't know exactly what it is that these guys were headed for, but here's how their lives end. Peter was crucified upside down because he refused to be killed in the same way as his Lord. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Mark Baher asked me after, after first service, he said, now is that more painful than being crucified in butter or canola oil? Is that, is that worse? <clears throat> James was beheaded. John is exiled away from everyone who knew him and who he knew and loved. These are bitter ends. These are not the kinds of lives that we aspire to. Like you've all done the exercise where you, you write your own obituary, and none of us are writing, and it's like a loving husband, loved by everyone he met, pastor of the church, crucified upside down. Like <laughs> none of us are writing that into the end of our story. And we don't actually talk about this enough. Like we don't think about and take into account the great sacrifice and the pain of these early Christians. They endured hardship as followers, and many of them, not just these four, suffered ends just like this. And it wasn't because they one time prayed one prayer or voiced their favor of Jesus. It's because they took the call to follow seriously. Come follow me. They surrendered their whole lives. They gave up all that they had so that the world would know him. And this kind of response, it only appears rare on the surface to us because we witness it so infrequently today. It is so easy to be a Christian. It is so easy to walk in this building and sit down in this seat and sing the songs and do whatever. It is so easy to be a Christian. And despite what we might think about the world around us and any kind of oppression or, or antagonism towards the Christian faith, it is, it is nowhere close. I don't know anyone who's been crucified upside down. Do you? I don't see beheadings happening. That's a different level of oppression. It is easy to be a Christian. And friends, here's what I'm worried about. I'm, I'm afraid that that's a problem. I'm afraid that we've made it too easy to sit in this room sometimes and just play the part and not actually consider the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus' promise is not a plush life. It's not a life of convenience or ease. It is a life that matters. It is a life that's worth it. It's a life that counts for something. But it's not convenient and it's not easy. So how can Jesus be calling these men, knowing the future that lays ahead of them? How can he be calling them to lives of following when he knows the end that they will meet? And perhaps it's this. Perhaps dying for Jesus is better than living for oneself. And Jesus knows that. German theologian who lived during World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, incredible author, he writes these words, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I'm convinced of this. The only things worth living for are things that you'd be willing to die for. The only things worth living for are things that you'd be willing to die for. And we spend our time living for a lot lesser things. 
Like, like if push came to shove, your house is on fire, what are you grabbing? Your kids. And you're getting out of there. Gun to your head, someone's trying to take your car. Are you trying to hold onto the steering wheel saying, no, this is my car? No, you're, you're getting out of there. You're leaving that car behind because your life matters more than a material thing. But we spend our lives chasing after things that in the end will never be worth it. Will never add up to the kind of life that we've hoped for. And with immediacy upon the call of Jesus, these men drop their nets to follow him. I want to draw attention to where we find James and John because they're sitting in the boat with their father Zebedee. And I think probably Mark is drawing our attention to this fact that they're with their dad in the boat because most of us live under the lid of someone else's expectations. Most of us have lived our lives thinking, what do other people want from me? And for a lot of us, that came from our parents who charted a course way ahead of time and said, here's what you need to go do, and here's the kind of grades you have to get, and here's the teams you have to play on, and here's the college you have to go to, and you have to get this many scholarships, and you have to step into this kind of career and make this much money and marry this kind of person. And, and like they've charted this course for us, and it's well-intentioned. Hear me, it's well-intentioned, but it's misguided. And we live under the lid of other people's expectations, and they've set this course before we've ever even had a chance to think about it, and we live in fear of disappointing that person. And yet here's James and John sitting in the boat with their dad, likely who is getting ready to hand over the family business of fishing to them. And Jesus calls them, and what do they do? Jump out of the boat. Dad, we love you, but this is more important. Dad, we love you, but this is more important. We don't fully follow because we still doubt Jesus' authority. So we bend our knee to the authority of others. Yeah, I follow Jesus, but man, I'm still living under the lid of this person's expectations. I'm still trying to please this person more than I am just following Jesus where he's calling me to go. The picture of leaving their father behind is not one of abandonment. It's simply one of acknowledgement that the call of Christ supersedes all else. And unless it does, you're not following him. You're just a fan of him. And so parents, like, hear me in this. And, and I wrestle with this all the time too, but if you're painting a picture of your child's future, like if your vision for them is contingent upon success in this world and has nothing to do with service to Jesus, please get on your knees. Please ask God to give you a different vision of what it means to raise your child. Following Jesus is the most important thing they could ever do. And he will call them. He will take them to places that you're not prepared to release them to. My mom told us, this is probably five or six years ago, she prayed every day, God help me to give them away. <laughs> as a dad of three, I'm not ready to do that. But that's the kind of life as a parent you're called to do, to prepare them, equip them, to be sent by Jesus, to follow where he is going to not just say, here's the destination, we'll meet you there, but here's the direction. Jesus is going here, you need to go with him. So will we follow him? Because if we don't lay down our nets, our nets will just end up holding us back. They'll keep us from the kind of life that Jesus is calling us to. Will we follow him to sinners' tables, to the bedside of the sick, to the homes of the disreputable, to the hungry, to the broken, to the lost, to the afraid, to the confused, to the people who don't look like us, think like us, act like us, vote like us? Will we follow him? Because he's going there. And he's going to ask you to come with him. 
We must exchange everything about who we used to be to become all that Jesus is calling us to be. And this response to his invitation, come follow me, it hangs in the balance of weighing this decision. Is what I'm leaving behind better than what lies ahead? Friends, this is faith. That we choose to trust Jesus, that the life that he's calling us into is far better than what we're leaving behind. Will you trust Jesus that what lies ahead of you is far greater than what you leave behind? If you find yourself just trying to to get back to the way things were, or to stay where it's comfortable, or or to find a life that's, that's easy, or to follow Jesus when it's convenient, that's not the kind of life he's calling you to. It's not the kind of life outlined in the gospel. It's not the kind of life that these early Christians lived. It's not the kind of life that Peter and Andrew and James and John would walk and live in this world. Man, if we're trying to do things easy, then perhaps we're not following Christ at all. Perhaps you're like me. I sometimes flip this invitation around. Jesus, please just follow me. <laughs> like I have some things I want to go do. You know, like I, I want to accomplish some stuff. and I got, Just follow me around. Clean up the messes that I've made. Make sure I don't experience pain and turmoil. Jesus, follow me. I'm going over here. I need you to take care of me because I've got some stuff I want to do. And we make our lives about ourselves and we flip the invitation around and instead of Jesus saying, come follow me, we say, Jesus, please follow me. I need you to make sure anything bad doesn't happen to me. And here's what I'm certain of. I'm certain the life that you and I long for doesn't happen when we do everything we can to insulate against all of those dangers we perceive. It doesn't happen when we try to insulate ourselves. It happens when we actually imitate the way of Jesus. We all want to live a life that matters. We all want to live a life that counts. We all want to live a life that lasts beyond our time here on this earth. And the only way to do that is following Jesus completely. Author and preacher David Platt has written quite a bit about what it means to follow Jesus. And here's what he says. Many professing Christians are stuck believing that Jesus has cleansed them from their sins, yet lacking true, authentic, real, radical change in their lives. Like if tomorrow you woke up and decided you were no longer a Christian, would anybody notice? Like if you said, "Ah, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. Because you're all nice people. I'm a nice person. I'm a good guy. We're still going to go out and, and act kindly and do those kinds of things, but like, who's going to miss? Who's going to miss that you no longer follow the way of Jesus? If the answer is no one, may I suggest that we're not actually following Him? Jesus' sacrifice for us is, is not just about cleaning us up, but it's also about filling us up. He takes us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. He's got some stuff he wants us to do. He's got a life he wants to live, and he's got some people he wants us to lead. Platt continues, he says this, in a world where everything revolves around self, protect yourself, promote yourself, preserve yourself, entertain yourself, comfort yourself, take care of yourself, Jesus says this, slay yourself. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone trying to hold on to his life, he will lose it. But anyone who gives up his life on account of me, then he will find it. In a culture so oriented around self, this is almost impossible to hear. But because it's impossible to hear, it makes sense, doesn't it? 
that perhaps the way that we've tried to keep everything going in our world, it's so me-oriented, and, and we keep running into that same wall. Does any of this matter? Do I count? Is any of this worth it? How come I don't feel the way I thought I would feel even after I got all the stuff I wanted to have? Maybe it's because Jesus is right. And friends, if, if your discipleship, my discipleship, if, they, if it costs us nothing, if it costs you nothing to follow Jesus, then maybe we need to rethink what it means to accept Jesus' call to follow. Jesus, immediately after calling his disciples, will go to a place called Capernaum. Here's what the text says, Mark chapter 1, 21 through 34. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a young man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately... They told him about her, and he came back and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and her fever left her, and she began to serve them. Simon is Peter. Peter denies Jesus, and most scholars would tell you Peter denies Jesus because he heals his mother-in-law when she's on her deathbed. Okay, you guys didn't like that, like first service liked it. Okay. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In reading this passage of Scripture, two things jump out to me as Jesus goes into Capernaum. There's two words here, immediately and authority. Mark uses the word immediately six times, short section of text. It's kind of like the girl, you know, high school girl who can't stop saying the word literally. Like literally, he talked to me, and then literally here's what he said, and literally I couldn't believe it, right? You know that girl. She's not here, okay? Don't look around. She's not here, but you know that girl. That's how, like, that's almost what it sounds like as Mark's writing this because he uses this word immediately so frequently. There's this sense of urgency in what Jesus is doing. The disciples step out of the water onto the shore, and follow Jesus right into Capernaum, and, and immediately his ministry begins. Where Jesus is going, he's calling you to follow. And Jesus is always on the move. Immediately he's going here, and then he's going here, and then he's going here. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. What happens, what happens if Peter and Andrew and James and John, if any of them just said, no, I'm, I'm good. I think I'll just stay here and fish. I, I, I'm, I'm fine. I don't, I don't need anything else. Think what they would have missed. Like, I don't know if there's anything in the world I'd rather witness than one of Jesus' miracles. Can you imagine being on his heels, walking to all these places, and like not having any idea what's about to happen next? Here's a demon-possessed man, and you're like, yeah, whenever he shows up, we all get out of here, because things go crazy. And he's convulsing and rolling all over the floor, and Jesus just looks at him, and he's like, hey, come out. And the demons leave him, and now here's this guy 
It was put together. He's got like his hairs parted all of a sudden. Like everything's back to normal. Like what in the world just happened? Can you, can you imagine being on Jesus' side when he walks into the room of a sick person? And you're like, we've seen this before. We, like we know it. This happened to a relative of mine. And they passed away from this. And Jesus just walks right up to the bed. And he grabs her by the hand. He says, get up. Let's go. And everything that was wrong disappears. Can you imagine being on the hillside as Jesus takes loaves and fish and all of a sudden there's just more? Like they don't know how. Like Jesus, you've, like what's up, what else is up your sleeves here? And just more appears over and over and over again. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are fed. Can you imagine seeing that? Like David Blaine, get out of here. We know. It's all, it's all a hoax. Okay? Watch the videos on how you do it. Jesus wasn't like that. Can you imagine being right there with him? Think about the life they would have missed if they didn't respond to the call to follow. This word authority also stands out. The crowd murmurs to each other. He teaches as one who has authority. And they'd been around people who had authority. The rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, people who would taught and teach and instruct in the synagogue. But this guy was different. It's as if they didn't even hold a candle to him. Mark illustrates the way in which all of us should respond to the call of Jesus promptly and completely. Promptly and completely. As Jesus calls you to follow, we just need to go. Jesus holds all authority, but you and I can choose not to make him our authority. We can still live the way we want to live. He allows us to because he loves us. But he gives us the invitation. In his book, Immeasurable, author Sky Jathani writes this. He says, compare these two leaders. Leader A lifted an entire nation in a time of, dis of despair. He mobilized his people against unimaginable odds with a clear vision and inspiring passion. He launched a movement that has impacted literally everyone alive today. He set in motion an industrial and scientific revolution and produced the first computer, the first jet airplane, began human exploration of space, unlocked the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the modern world has in one way or another been influenced by this man. And by the time he died at the age of only 56, everyone on the planet knew his name. Without a doubt, Leader A changed the world. Leader B lived during the same era. In fact, he died just 21 days before Leader A. But his life was very different. And at the height of his influence, Leader B ran a school with just 100 students. He wrote a few books, but was not widely regarded. He was beloved by his friends and family and had a reputation for being both intelligent and faithful. But at the time of his death, almost no one knew his name, and most considered his life's work unfulfilled, including Leader B himself. So given the choice, like which leader would you want to have? Which one would you follow, or which life would you want to have? Leader A is Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Leader B is his contemporary, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who we quoted earlier. Bonhoeffer was executed 21 days before Hitler took his own life because Bonhoeffer was a part of the plot to assassinate Hitler to prevent further genocide of the Jewish people. One of these guys lived only for himself. The other died to himself, deciding that the way of Jesus was better. Bonhoeffer writes a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And we read a line from it earlier, but I want, to lay to, I want to read to you 
the greater context of that statement. Here's what he says. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. And as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death, and thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it, it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old self at his call. To come back to that question, how could Jesus call these men to follow him, knowing how their lives would end up, knowing that they were headed towards death? Here's what I think is true. I think those guys died long before that moment. I think the moment Jesus called them to step out of that boat, they began to die to themselves day after day after day. Life's not about you. Life's not wrapped up in what you want or think. Life is about following me. Life's about chasing after Jesus. It's about going in the direction that he's leading you. And so when they reach that moment and ultimately their physical body is taken away from them, it's no big deal. I died a long time ago. I can give my physical life here and now because I know where Jesus is calling me. And I believe that everything I left behind is worth it for what lies ahead. Let's stand and worship Jesus together.